after the seven seals on the scroll that was in the right hand of him who sits on the throne were opened by the once slain Lamb of God who alone is worthy to break those seals. And the judgment of God begins to fall upon the earth. Seven angels line up in the throne room of God with seven trumpets. And they began to sound their trumpets, ushering in unprecedented wrath of God. The first four trumpets sounded, and the world sees the wrath of God as never before. But we are warned in Revelation that there were three woes to come that would be far worse than the first four trumpets. The fifth trumpet sounds in the first woe of God's wrath unfolds on the world. Today we look at the beginning of the second woe and the sounding of the sixth trumpet. So let's read together in Revelation chapter 9 starting in verse 13. We'll read through verse 19. Revelation chapter 9 starting in verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horse, the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. One-third of the world. Imagine, if you consider today's population numbers, that's 2.5 billion people dead. That's all of China and India combined dead. The United States has somewhere around 326 million people. Million? It's going to take a lot of multiples of 326 million to get to 2.5 billion. If the deaths of one-third of all humanity are spread out equally over the face of the earth, in the United States we would experience the death of 108 million people. Texas has 26 million people. If 
The state of Texas experienced the death of one-third of all the people that inhabit our state. In one moment, eight million people would die. If we were living here in the city of Georgetown when this moment unfolded, over 22,000 people would die. I tried to think about what that would be like in my neighborhood. We have approximately 30 or so homes in our neighborhood. This would mean that 10 homes, everybody that lived in 10 homes in our neighborhood would die. Can you imagine the reaction of the 20 homes that were still living in light of 10 homes in the neighborhood dying? And then going and checking on our phones or turning on the TV and realizing that the very same thing is happening all over the face of the earth. That a third of everybody living was dying. And combine that picture with the fact that they are all dying at the hands of an army 200 million strong whose riders ride on horses, whose heads look like lions and tails look like snakes. Out of which their mouths come fire, brimstone, and smoke that creates a plague that wipes out the world. Can you imagine the chaos, the brokenness, the pain? the devastation. This is the unfolding of the unprecedented wrath of God. But I don't want you to miss here this special emphasis in verse 15. Read with me again verse 15. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released. So that this would unfold. There was an hour prepared for this moment. And God has controlled everything so that this particular moment occurred. There is an emphasis on the fact that there is an hour chosen for this moment. And that this moment will not occur until that hour arrives and God sends forth his wrath. Now why is that important? If you trace through the scriptures, the moments where God unfolds or pours out any degree of his judgment, you will see a consistent theme through the Bible. That God is delaying the outpouring of justice and judgment that should rightfully fall on those who reject God. He is delaying the outpouring of His wrath until the last possible moment. Giving people the opportunity to respond to Him before the outpouring of His judgment. You can see it scattered throughout all the Old Testament through Exodus 
and the outpouring of God's wrath in the people groups in the promised land. You can see it all through the major and minor prophets of the Old Testament. That God is holding back his wrath constantly in order to give people opportunities to respond to him. It's that, that theme through all of scripture is summarized really well in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. It says God is not slow about keeping his promise, as some might count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. We are reminded that this hour has been reserved and determined by God but it is an hour of the outpouring of his wrath that is completely unprecedented, that has been delayed so that people might respond to the Lord. We live right now in the moment of delay so that we all might respond to the Lord. Those who were alive after the sounding of the sixth trumpet lived in a moment of delay. You realize the fifth trumpet, everyone wanted to die and God prevented them to die so that they might see and respond to him. Then this moment arrives and though a third of humanity is judged, two-thirds still remains with the opportunity to respond. God is consistently through scripture delaying moments of judgment to give people an opportunity to respond to him. You live in that delay. The people who made it through the sounding of the sixth trumpet lived in that moment where life was still there, which makes verse 20 and 21 utterly shocking. Read with me Revelation chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons, the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. Shocking. Utterly shocking. They did not repent. And everybody that was alive, having been spared death, escaping death, in that moment, chose to die. They had been spared death and in the moment of being spared of death, they made the choice to die. I want you to listen to Psalm 115. Psalm 115 starting in verse 4 says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. 
They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Verse 8, those who make the idols, who make them, will become like the idols. Everyone who trusts in idols. What does this say? Whenever you make the decision to trust in an idol, you are making the decision to become as dead as your idols. These people were spared. They had life and breath, and the beating of their hearts disguised the fact that their choice to worship but not worship God was a choice to die. Now, God has given us the opportunity to behold what will take place. And by beholding what will take place, do something far better in this moment of delay than they did. we got to make a better choice. So I want to encourage you this morning, in response to what God has revealed about Jesus Christ, His righteousness and His justice in judgment, to do something better than those who were given a moment of delay by having their lives spared at the sounding of the sixth trumpet. That sound of the sixth trumpet for those who were alive was the sound of a second chance. And they chose to worship. They just didn't choose to worship God. Have you ever had this thought? Now follow this with me. You know the story of the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt and the plagues that God sent on the nation of Egypt in order for his people to walk out of Egypt, set free from their slavery. You remember this story? There's an aspect in that story that's really interesting. God told his people, when you leave Egypt... The Egyptian people are going to be so anxious for you to leave that they're going to bless you on your way out by giving you a bunch of gold jewelry. So God's providing his people this, this provision of gold through the gifts of the Egyptians wanting to send them on their way and get them out of there. And it all happened through this miraculous work of God that all the Israelites experienced. So they get out there in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They've just experienced this amazing salvation and deliverance of God. Moses goes up on a mountain to have conversations with God on their behalf so they might know, so they might know how to follow him and walk with him. And while he's up there, because it takes a little bit longer than what they're comfortable with, they decide to take all the gold that God provided for them and fashion that, go that gold, God's provision, into an idol, a golden calf, and they bowed down before the provision of God, and they said they did not want to bow down before the provider anymore, and they gave themselves to idolatry. 
Have you ever had this thought knowing that story? Those Israelites were not very smart. You ever thought that? I feel a little bit similar towards the reading of those here in Revelation. They're seeing the evidence of God's sovereign control over all things in a way that probably has not been apparent on the face of the earth since Jesus Christ walked the earth. Unbelievable display of God bringing all things to the point of His judgment. And when the world sees that, the world that is spared, they look at that and they say, we will worship, but we will not worship the Creator. We'll worship created things. We will worship, we will not worship the provider. We will worship what He has provided us. We will worship, but we will not worship God. Now, there are stories throughout the Bible of similar choices where God has displayed His goodness, His righteousness, His worth to be worshipped in unbelievable ways and people who experience and see those displays in the face of those opportunities choose to worship idolatries, idols. There's those stories throughout Scripture. And you get in the New Testament, you know what the New Testament warns us, followers of Christ, repeatedly about making a choice not to worship idols, but to worship Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You, you, know, you know why we have all these stories and all of these commands is because as silly as we might think the Israelites are, or as unbelievable as we might think the reaction of those in Revelation is, we are being reminded of our tendency. Every single one of us are in the same predicament. Left to ourselves, we will worship. We just won't choose to worship God our tendency every one of us is to worship idols to have a greater regard for things that are created than the creator to put more value in the things that are provided instead of the provider our tendency is to move towards idolatry and left to ourselves, that's exactly where we'll be. And the deception is in the fact that we can pursue those idolatry worship efforts while our heart is beating and actually believe we're alive when in reality we are choosing to die. We all have the same tendency. And the only rescue for the tendency we all have towards idolatry is Jesus Christ. He's the only rescue. If you've not made the decision to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is no pursuit which you can take in life that will provide you the life you long for. You do not find life in any other way except deciding to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and surrendering your life to a life of worshiping 
Him. We all need to recognize our tendency towards idolatry and trust in Jesus Christ and worship Him alone in order to be delivered from our tendency to become idol worshipers. He is the only way. And we must choose to worship Christ and Christ alone. When we make the choice to worship Jesus Christ, you know you can boil down this whole response to what God is doing to something very simple. Just make sure you do the little things in your life with regard for God. That's the best approach. If you, if you consider the people in Revelation, what did they do? Well, the biggest moment of God on, you know, on display, and they choose to worship idols. And I'm convinced it's all the little things they did before that big moment that got them in the condition they were. They made a lot of choices about the everyday life things that had no regard for God. When you get to the biggest moment of all, it's, they act like they don't even see who God is. It's like they're totally blinded. Their hearts are seared. And left so scarred that they have no feeling towards God. How did they get to the point of no return? I think if we want to guard ourselves from getting to the point of no return and being idol worship wrapped up in the deception of idolatry, we got to make sure that the little things in our life are reflecting a regard for God. Think about it like this. This week, when somebody treats you in a way that you know is not right. How are you going to react to that? Be like, call your best friend. You're not going to believe what they did to me. We all have that tendency, right? I'm going to get mad at them because of the way they treated me. Am I acting in the little things that characterize my everyday life with an increasing regard for God or a decreasing regard for God? How about this one? How are you spending the thir first 30 minutes of your day? When you wake up in the morning, what characterizes your first 30 minutes? Are you considering when you wake up in the morning that the fact that you are breathing and your heart is beating, that God has given you a window of opportunity in your day to know Him, to be captured by His love for you, to walk in His purposes so that whatever you encounter in the day, you know He's already gone ahead of you and he is ready to help you walk through it and display his goodness. How are you encountering your first 30 minutes? Are you setting your mind on who God is and what God says? Because you know that you cannot go through the rest of your day unless you have reoriented your heart and your mind to who God is. How are you handling the little decisions you make every single day? If you get up and go to work tomorrow morning, why are you going to get up and go to work? Are you going to get up and go to work because you've made the decision that that's just what you do? That's just what you got to do because that's your life. You just go to work. Or are you going to wake up and realize when I step out the door to go into my workplace, my work environment, my work experience, I have the opportunity to wield the skills that God has given me. 
the gifts that he has appropriated to me for his glory with such a degree of excellence and, and passion that God could be made noticeable through what I do. So the people around me could actually see what I do and how I do it and wonder, how is it that that person can be so motivated to do what they're doing with the skills and the experience and the, and the gifts they're bringing to bear with this degree of passion? What's going on with this person? They're not working for their employer something else is going on no I'm working as unto the Lord bringing to bear all that he has given me for his glory or do I wake up in the morning and think I've got to go to work today because if I don't go to work I won't get paid I mean little decisions of why we even get up in the morning and go out the door to work do we believe that God is our provider that he's given us skills and interests and passions to put on display in the opportunities of employment we have before us so that people might experience the goodness of God through the people who know him. I, I know people through the years who have actually continued to do jobs they do not enjoy because they can't see how they can take care of their family if they stop doing the job they don't enjoy and have no other option for employment. You see, these bigger decisions are seasoned by little decisions, and before we know it, we're making big decisions that have low regard for God and who He is. God's plan is for God's people to do the work that God has gifted them to do in such a way that they work... And their work is worship. God wants us to work as worship. But you can't make the decision to leave for your job and say today is going to be a day of worship. If you've not made the little decisions to orient your life by who God is and what he says. And I'm just going to tell you, that doesn't happen if you don't spend time saturating your heart and your mind with the Word of God. If, if you don't regularly saturate your mind and heart with who God is and what God says through the Word of God and through the gathering of the people of God as we come together to worship and encourage one another, if you don't make spending time daily in the Word of God and in prayer and spending regular time with the people of God just a part of your life, you will not remain neutral. Every one of us have a tendency to drift in idolatry. But God has given us this great gift of His Word and His people to be secured in worship of Him. And it matters what you choose to do in the little things of regular life. How you respond to people, how you spend your time, what you do for your work. I mean, all those things matter. When you make a series of little choices, Along life's regular opportunities with no regard for God, you're headed and sliding towards the point of no return. Where idolatry seizes your heart and mind and confuses you so much that you won't be able to see what God is actually doing around you. Isaiah 44 describes it like this. There's a man who planted a seedling. He wanted to make that tree grow. 
As that tree grew, by the way, because rains fell on that seedling. The, the emphasis there in the rains falling on the seedling is that the guy had nothing to do with the tree growing. God did. But the man thinks it's his tree that he's raising. And he raises that tree and it reaches maturity. He takes that tree and he chops it down. Because he needs that wood to put on a fire to warm himself. He builds a fire and he begins to warm himself. And he looks, oh, I am warm because of the tree that I grew and cut down and brought into my fireplace. And this is awesome. And then he takes a portion of that wood and he puts it over his cook fire. And he begins to make his food and he bakes bread by the fire made from the wood that he grew and cut down and chopped and made ready. And he eats roasted meat over that fire and it's delicious to his taste. And he thinks, oh, I am satisfied because of the tree that I grew and cut down and made into my fire. And I cooked my food over that fire. This is Wonderful. Then he takes a piece of that wood, what's left, and he fashions from that wood an idol. And he bows down before that wood and he says, you are my God, deliver me. And God says that at that point he has become so deceived that when he holds that idol that he fashioned from that tree in his right hand, and says to that idol, deliver me. He cannot see that what he holds in his right hand is a lie. How do you get to the point of no return? You make all the little decisions every day in your life with no regard for God. And they will pile up in your life. And you will find yourself in a position of being deceived by what previously you would have said, that is ridiculous. We have got to choose to have regard for God in all that we do. Not only that, we need to deal with the idols in our lives. You know, every one of us have temptations towards certain aspects of idolatry. There are certain things that are opportunities for worshiping anything and everyone other than God that presented to us every single day. And all of us have our idols, the temptations in our life that draw us away from the worship of God. And there's three ways you can approach the idols that tempt you in your life. Let me give you those three ways real quick. You can, one of three things, flee from your idols. You can guard against your idols. Or you can destroy your idols. Those are your three options biblically for how you approach the temptation to idolatry. Let me give you an example of each of those. Fleeing from idolatry. The Bible encourages us to flee sexual immorality. Like that's an idol that is tempting, particularly a lot of guys um, in, in our world. Certainly everybody has some level of that potential temptation. Some experience it more than others. But that's one of them the Bible addresses, sexual Immorality, And the Bible encourages us to flee sexual immorality because the Bible, because God knows that we cannot live with any degree of sexual immorality in our lives and escape the harm done to our hearts and lives personally and the harm done to the lives of those around us. And so the Bible says this particular issue of idolatry, you better flee from it. You better get as far away from sexual immorality as you possibly can because you can't handle any degree of it in your life. Flee. 
Then there are some idols we simply need to guard against. The, the greatest example for this one in the Bible is money. You can't flee money. And you certainly better not destroy it. You can be a big mess. You've got to use money. That's the culture in which we live. That's the status of how we live our lives. We've got to use money. So the Bible says instead of thinking in terms of fleeing from the use of money or destroying money, we simply need to guard our hearts against making money an idol. Now money in and of itself is not bad. It's what we do with it that gets us in a bad situation. So the Bible says here's how you go about it. You guard your heart against greed and the idol of money by using money in a particular way. And God describes how we as followers of Christ are to use our money. You can boil it down to this statement. We are to be a people who with our money are generous towards the things of God. We're generous givers. Now the reason God makes that clear says this is how you can use money that I give you to combat the temptation to make money your idol. Just be generous with it. Give faithfully to the work of God. And you will find a protection, a guarding against the idolatry of money. Here's how it works. If you think about taking a vaccine for a disease, what you're simply doing is taking a little form of the pathogen so that your antibodies work up a resistance against the disease so that when you encounter the full-on disease, your body is ready to fight it and you went out over it. That's what the Bible is talking about. It says guard against certain things. So you're taking the money and you're using it in a way that God has prescribed and the use of that money, which could become an all-out disease in your life, is, by God's prescription, is creating in your heart the spiritual antibodies that protect you from making money your idol. That's what you got to guard against, certain kinds of idols. And then you got to destroy other idols. So when you can't just flee it or you can't just guard against it, you destroy it when the Bible allows for you to destroy it, right? So... Let me give you an example of this one. In the book of Acts, Luke talks about the city of Ephesus. And there are people in the city of Ephesus that turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This group of people has been practicing magic and sorcery in Ephesus. That's their idolatry. They're pursuing spiritual ends by spiritual means that are an abomination to God. And these people have a ton of books that describe how to practice their idolatry. So what they decide is, we decided to follow Christ. These books are not good for us. They're not good for anybody else. And this is the clearest pathway back to our idolatry. How about we pile up all these books in the middle of town and let's burn them all to ash? And that's what they did. They destroyed the clearest avenue back to their idolatry because it was permissible in light of God's word and was the best approach to handle their particular temptation to idolatry. So where you can flee it, flee it. Where you can guard against it, guard against it. And where it's permissible, biblically, destroy it. Now, I think it's very interesting that 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to quote a verse and many of you are going to recognize this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. For no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to everybody. But God is faithful because with every temptation, he provides a way of escape. So that you might escape the very thing that's tempting you. Now what we might not remember is what follows verse 13. 
verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is, Therefore flee idolatry. God has made a way for you to choose to worship Him instead of anything and everything else. Right now, right where you live. Now, there's no doubt there's coming a day for those who trust in Jesus Christ where God is going to make everything brand new. We're going to be on a brand new earth that's never been affected by idolatry. We're going to have brand new bodies that have never been scarred and marred by the idolatry, the sin of idolatry. And we're going to be able to live lives of perfect worship and we're going to be more alive than ever before. That day is coming. That day of promise is coming, but it is being delayed right now because God is giving opportunity for everyone to repent, which means we live right now in a world that is broken by idolatry. And that means this world's going to provide all kinds of problems, and temptations, and difficulties, and tragedies. But every one of those problems, difficulties, and challenges are happening in the delay. So what that means is God is using every circumstance to create an opportunity for you and for me to choose to worship Him and Him alone. William Booth was a founder of the Salvation Army, and about a, over 100 years ago, his son-in-law was in charge of the Salvation Army here in America. And one night, his son-in-law was preaching, Frederick was preaching a sermon about how much God cared about us. And after he finished preaching that sermon, a man walked up the aisle and said to him, Hey, uh, Mr. Booth Tucker, I want to tell you right now that if you were in the experience that I was in, you would not say the things that you were saying about Jesus. He says, My wife has died my children are left with no one. And if you had to hear the cries of your children crying out for the mom that would never respond to them again, you wouldn't say what you're saying about Jesus. Little did that man know, or little did Frederick Booth Tucker know, that just in a few days, his wife Emma would be tragically killed in a train accident. They brought her body back to that very same chapel. And Frederick performed the funeral service. At the end of that service, he stood up in front of that crowd that had gathered there to mourn with him. And he said, a few days ago, there was a man who came down to talk to me after a sermon. I don't know if you're here today, but he said, I want you to know, you said to me on that day, I would never say about Jesus what I'm saying if I'd lost my wife. I've lost my wife. My heart is broken. But in the midst of the brokenness, I have found a song that Jesus has put in my heart. And I am worshiping him because he is sufficient. You know what Frederick just communicated? That every circumstance, this side of heaven, creates opportunities for us to choose to worship. We will worship. But only the worship of God through faith in Jesus Christ brings life. So choose to live a life of worshiping Jesus Christ again and again and again, no matter what.